are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center here at Piedmont University. Today, I am joined by Dr. Meredith McCarroll. She has been a former resident at the LES Center. She has also just been named the Associate Editor of the Journal for Appalachian Studies. She has 20 years experience teaching, editing, and publishing, and she's written a range of texts from academic to literary nonfiction. She actually has a book of edited essays in response to J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Can you remind me the name of that book one more time, please? Yep. Appalachian Reckoning, a Region Response to Hillbilly Elegy. From West Virginia Press in 2019. And she's also the author of Unwhite, Appalachia Race and Film. And it's a pleasure to be able to sit down and talk with you today because I'm from Louisiana. You're from Waynesville, North Carolina originally. I've been here about <clears throat> four years and I'm just, I guess, now getting started digging deeper into Appalachian literature, um, which coming from Louisiana, I'm more focused on Louisiana literature and kind of the Gulf Coast region. Mm-hmm. So I'm really kind of interested in this discussion. But since this is a podcast about Lillian Smith and about kind of her work and her its importance and just kind of the way she influences people, I guess we just need to start there about where you came to know Lillian Smith. Because like I said, you did a residency here, which we'll talk about but you also know her work. So how did you kind of come to know her? Yeah. Well, first, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, nice to get to sit down and talk with you. Um, And I am excited to talk about Lillian Smith because I think she's a person, um, she's kind of a hidden treasure that a lot of people don't know about. Um, So I came to know Lillian Smith uh, back in 2001. So I had um, earned an English bachelor's degree from Appalachian State University, where I kind of did my my best to avoid <laughs> studying Appalachia and avoid studying women, which is pretty funny, um, only in retrospect. Uh, it's pretty sad that I actually missed some great opportunities, but I felt like the, I was not interested in like what I felt were women's stories. And I don't know, I, I could say a lot about why I think that was, but I had a real misunderstanding of, of what that meant, of what like quote women's literature meant. I felt like there was a weakness around that. And I just missed so much uh, in, in that misunderstanding. And I also just felt like, well, why would I read stories about the place that I'm from? And so for my undergraduate, I did take one class in Appalachian studies, but for the most part, I was you know, just like bouncing around and and I missed a lot of opportunities to to think about Appalachia. So when I went to, um, uh, eventually I, I came back to Appalachian and got a master's degree. And that's where I got to know Appalachian studies and started thinking about, okay, I want to write about, and that's where I also kind of like returned to and asked questions about women's writing and realized all the ways that I had really misunderstood um, what that, all the things that that could mean. So it was in my, I had just finished my master's degree at Appalachian, um, studying mostly with Chip Arnold um, and CC Conway and Lynn Sanders at Appalachian, where I was writing about women's labor and Appalachian literature. So that's on my mind. I'm thinking about like both the ways that I had misunderstood Appalachia and women's writing and women's roles. And then I had done this pro- this big project on that. So these are the things that are in my mind. And I think about the fact that I I decided that I wanted to go get a second master's degree in uh, gender and cultural studies. And so I move to Boston and I enroll in Simmons College in this master's program in gender and cultural studies. I promise Lillian's coming soon. So the first class that I took at Simmons in this program was a class called Whiteness, Anti-Racism and Justice. And so I had all these ideas about power and I was thinking about these these particular things from a gendered perspective. And then when I took this class, it completely blew my mind and changed the way that I thought about 
honestly, it changed the way I thought about pretty much everything. I don't think that I had ever um, figured out how I fit into conversations about race. And as a white person, it is it it had been too easy for me to avoid engaging in them, but I wanted to engage in them. And so when I took this class on whiteness, one of the first texts that I read was Lillian Smith's Killers of the Dream. And we read several um, memoirs or autobiographies or first person accounts from Southern women who were anti-racist and white. And uh, Mab Seagrest was another one. There were a handful that we read. And when I saw those models, it shifted everything for me and made me realize that um, I could be a part of this conversation about race. I could situate myself as a white person, as a Southerner in this context and both name the thing that felt true to me and worked to disrupt it at the same time. And so Lillian Smith was a really important model for me in that work at this moment when I was just like trying to make sense of all these things about Appalachia, gender and race. She appeared and brought them all to the forefront for me. Yeah. And there were two things you kind of said there that really stood out to me as one, you said she's a hidden treasure. I think that phrase of hidden treasure is really interesting to me because I think she's hidden, but your addition of treasure there, I think is important. Mm -hmm. And the other thing too, is that you had to go to Boston to read about her, right? Yeah. So one thing I'm going to get into a little bit later is if we should call her an Appalachian writer, which I think is its own kind of discussion, but also why you had to leave the South to actually find her too. So can you kind of talk about those two things? Like one, why you think she's hidden and why we need to shine a light on her. And then also, you know, what it kind of did for you to go somewhere, Boston with its own history of racism and, mm -hmm. you know, issues, but going basically North and now you live in Maine, going North and finding her when she was right in your own backyard, basically for the whole time you were here. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know all the reasons that I had not read her and I don't know if she was being taught and if I just happened to miss her. But I think right before I moved to Boston, I had done an interview with um, the writer Robert Morgan, who was also from my neck of the woods and then moved and taught um, up in Ithaca at, at Cornell for years. And he said a thing to me and this at the end of this interview, as we were talking, he he talked about how for him he had to leave home in order to understand it. And I think lots and lots and lots of people talk about this. It just happened to be Robert Morgan who said that to me. And I, I don't know that you have to, but I will say that that was the case for me, that when I left the South and when I left Appalachia, a couple of things happened. And one is that, um, I guess one is kind of the simple thing that you would expect to say you get perspective and you realize the things that you love about a place after you leave it. Um, that, that I think isn't that surprising, but it really did, you know, as I, as I lived in a different place, as I took the train to work, as I lived in an apartment and tried to figure out how to grow tomatoes on my fire escape, it made me long for the place that I had left. Um, but also just understand like, oh, right. Not every place is like the mountains of North Carolina. Cause I'd lived my whole life in the mountains of North Carolina. But the other thing that happened that was really important to me at this time was, and I, I'll go back to that classroom, um, the whiteness, anti-racism and justice class. There were probably 10 of us in the class. All the students were white. It was designed by a white woman named Becky Thompson, who was on leave. And her replacement was a black woman named Loretta Williams. And so the dynamic was already a strange a strained one that Loretta and I came to talk about years later because we formed a friendship and remained in touch. But the fact that there was a class, you know, all of the students in this class were white. Um, and the only, the person in power was the only person of color in the room. And she was also an adjunct lecturer. So there are all these layers of complexity and she's teaching a course that a white woman designed that's focused on whiteness. 
And it's focused on whiteness in, in terms of like critical whiteness studies and critical race theory, but it's still not the class that she was designing. So I remember being in that class, kind of aware of all of the layered dynamics that were going on. But I also remember, if I'm remembering correctly, there were two of us who were Southern. There was a student from the coast of North Carolina, which is culturally a really, really different place than the mountains of North Carolina. And she had attended um, a, a historically black college as a white student. And so she had an awareness and a lived experience that was very, very different than mine in terms of race. So I remember feeling like I had to speak for the South and defend the South at the same time that I was seeing that I really, I didn't really want to, of course, I didn't want to defend a lot of the bad things about the South, but I understood when I moved to Boston that people were judging me by my accent. When I would say where I was from, people were making all kinds of assumptions and it forced me to try to really understand what is my relationship to the South and what is my relationship to Appalachia? What is my relationship to whiteness? How am I going to like claim these positions and push back against racism? Um, how do I claim claim myself as a Southerner who's anti-racist, as an Appalachian person who's anti-racist? And so I think that was part of why Lillian Smith was so important to me because she was doing those things. Um, but I don't know. I don't know why I had to go to Boston. I, I think those are the reasons I had to go to Boston in order to like be so ready to read her and to to think about. Um, race and region in these complex ways. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know why she isn't taught in that more widely or isn't known more widely, but hopefully, hopefully she can be. Well, one of the things you said there, I think that's important too, is you felt like you had to defend the South. And I just got through rereading Killers of the Dream because I'm teaching it this semester. Mm -hmm. And there's this section early on where she's talking, I think, to the camper and she's talking about the lost cause basically is what she's talking about. Right. And the, the reasons for the lost cause narrative. And she talks about there's a loyalty to the South that is kind of embedded in defending it because of the victimhood of the South. Right. I mean, she blames the North and the South equally for everything that is wrong, but she talks about why the loyalty to the South kind of stays there. Right. And one of the things I always kind of tell students and tell people, cause I teach mostly Southern students is, when you go somewhere, you will be viewed negatively because the South seems to be the receptacle for everybody's sins, right? And how do you kind of manage that if you're white, black, whatever, coming from this space, right? And I think it's really interesting you went to Boston, too, like I said, with its history of racism. I mean, one of the pictures I always show students, too, is the picture from the from the bus um, bus integration, with mm -hmm. the white guy with the American flag trying to stab a black man, right? Mm -hmm. And I ask him where it is. And then when I tell them that it's Boston, they're kind of shocked. Yeah. You know, that these things aren't just inherent to the South. They're inherent everywhere across the nation, but also worldwide too, in various ways, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I think that's a very kind of important thing that you mentioned. You felt like you had to defend the South from this, some kind of mm -hmm. Northern aggression, basically is what it kind of sounds like. Well, I think that as the person with the Southern accent in the room, and I definitely was the only person with a Southern accent. And I later learned that people would, <laughs> some of my new friends in that class would um, like do this bet to see how many times they could get me to say the word white. And I don't even know how I say it. Like, I just feel like I'm like, I'm saying it the only word, the only way you can say it. So but it yeah, wasn't, like, it wasn't y'all or something like that. Well, apparently it was just when I would say whiteness and they were just. Well, like, I, heard, I heard the accent there when you said whiteness. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a funny thing, right? Because you like learn to modulate in all of these different settings. And, and yeah, I think that that, that was, you know, that was 20 years ago. And I probably did have, I, I probably did say the word white differently than I, than I do now. But I, it, I definitely did not feel. I grew up at a, you know, obviously a different time than Lillian Smith, but there were people who talked about the war of Northern aggression, but that is not what I was raised on. So I didn't feel like I needed to defend the South in any of that kind of way. Uh, I, I, I felt 
very clearly that uh, what happened in the Civil War, that the outcome was the best outcome and that the rebellion was, uh, you know, about slavery and protection of slavery. So I felt very clear in that way and didn't feel like I needed to complicate that in a way that I think would be ahistoric. Oh, yeah, I, I, felt- I, I, yeah, I wasn't asking about that. I was just saying that's <laughs> that's the that's yeah. the issue she frames it in. And but some people still feel that way, I know. For yeah, sure. I'm kind of in the same boat as you that I don't feel like that's what I have to defend for. I mean, I have to defend for the fact right. that I'm viewed as backwards. Right, right. And I think that, but it's all tied to that, right? It comes, it comes back, you know, it trickles down from that way of thinking and talking about history. Um, but I think that what I wanted to be able to do is say, no, 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 the South is diverse. The South is complex. The, you know, Appalachia is not what you think it is. And, and I couldn't figure out at that moment as I was learning so much how, and maybe I still haven't figured this out, frankly, the both and, the yes and approach of how to say this history is devastating. These things happened and they matter and there's hope and there's, there is good work that's happening in the South and please don't judge me by what you see on TV or what you watch on, you know, in a movie or whatever. So that was what I was feeling was that awareness that other people had these stereotypes of the South that they were placing on me. What was so important about that class for me when we read people like Lillian Smith is that everyone was culpable. So there was no way to be sitting in that classroom in Boston and fall into the thing that happens so often of, of, yeah, having the South be the scapegoat because we were talking about white privilege. We were talking about systems and structures that uphold um, white power structures. And so everyone in the room who had white privilege was, um, was a part of that. Yeah. And one of the things she's very adamant about is when she's talking to that camper is, the North and the South are just as culpable. It's just that the North won and they didn't have enslavement or they, most of the Northern states, you know, did away with enslavement early on, but they were just as culpable because they profited from it. Right. And then mm-hmm. she also talks about the way that Congress and the Supreme Court and, you know, politicians benefit from it mm-hmm. with the two men in the bargain. So I think that that's a really kind of important thing too is realizing that she doesn't it it is whiteness it's not dealing with she's talking about the south because it's her own experience and her own personal experience but she's expanding it beyond the south too and one thing you said there too which is a focus of your work is you felt like you had to say that appalachia is not what you think it is right Mm -hmm. or what people think it is can you kind of talk about you know the image of appalachia and what it is and of course me moving here I don't think I really had an image of Appalachia. You know, I looked at kind of demographics from where I'm living, but being here and meeting people like Marie um, and other people, right. It's just, it opens my eyes to more kind of thinking about, like you said, the diversity and even the changing diversity now with immigrants coming in and working in different places and things like that. So can you kind of talk about, I guess that a little bit, maybe in relation to Lillian or maybe just your own work? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I, I, think that at the same time when I moved to Boston, I mean, that really was an important thing just because it was the first time I moved away and, um, and I was engaging in all this work. I mean, my, my project for my master's at Simmons college in gender and cultural studies was about like, um, activism in the classroom. And then from there I went on to, because of this class and because in part of, of Lillian Smith's work, I, I had a way, I had kind of a, a toehold and I felt like I now understood how I could enter into a conversation about race. And that's what I really wanted to be writing about and thinking about, but I wasn't sure what, what my role was. So I went on and um, went to University of Tennessee in Knoxville and um, studied African-American literature primarily and wrote about African-American representations of whiteness. And so it was a critical white studies approach to literature and film. Um, now I have to ask who you did in that work. I'm, I'm yeah, kind of curious okay. what authors or what, you know, filmmakers. Yeah, you did in that work. Absolutely. This will be a good quiz because it's been a minute, but 
I wrote about Native Son. So Richard Wright's Native Son from 1940 and really situating him as uh, in that moment when his book was funded by the American Communist Party at a moment when the American Communist Party was about to fall apart and kind of the ways that he felt pressure to write whiteness, uh, that there's like a, a heroic whiteness in that book. Um, I wrote about two Sidney Poitier films uh, from 1967. One is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. The other is, um, what is the other one? Norman Jewison. Is it In the Heat of the Night? In the Heat of the Night, thank you. Um, both those, those films came out in the same year and they're really at this turning point. So I'm doing a lot of historic uh, situating of these texts, looking at how those two films are are together are demonstrating this this breaking point in the civil rights movement where white people were you know were asked to step back um and then we're just trying to figure out what what their role was then i look at uh the Percival Everett book, Erasure, which has just been made into a movie that I haven't seen yet. It has a different title. I haven't seen American fiction either. I want to. Yeah. It yeah. Has, it, it, has, it hasn't come to the mountains yet. Yeah. I'm... I paired that with Spike Lee's Bamboozled, looking at the ways it's sort of like black passing, like the ways that, that black people are expected to perform blackness in a particular way. Um, black people who are not not actually uh, passing as white, but but are read as culturally white, and the discomfort with that. Then I looked at uh, <laughs> Vin Diesel as a character um, who is trying to claim multiraciality, and people really are unhappy with the way that he's doing that. Like they want they want him to determine what he is and do what Tiger Woods did and give like an equation and come up with a new name for what he is. I think, yeah, that's, that was a little bit different than what I was thinking because you're, because you're looking at, you know, not necessarily representations of whiteness, that's part of it, but you're looking at the way whiteness is portrayed, I guess, in kind of these instances. And what I was thinking was the literature white estrangement what Dr. Veronica Watson calls it, right. Which is where African-American writers write, novels that are essentially about white characters mm -hmm. you know and using that as a lens to kind of interrogate whiteness i mean frank yerby is the one that i always go to and jordan neil hurston and charles chestnut and and all these authors all of these african-american authors who do this and they do it as a, as a way to do the same thing you're talking about mm -hmm. with spike lee and um portier and all of them but just by centering the white characters right and then having the black characters kind of on the on the periphery but mm -hmm. using them as a counter to the white characters. Yeah. Yeah. And I was kind of trying to get at like the ways that uh, ultimately the, the fact that like whiteness is you know not a thing and it's this performance and construction, but it's really powerful and thinking about how, I mean, it was kind of a depressing project because I wanted to be able to look at texts that were pushing against and disrupting whiteness. And I kept seeing even among texts that, that I thought were radical and were really pushing back that there's, this uh, upholding of an adherence to whiteness as a stable force. So um, yeah, so so that was that project, and then from there, I I wrote about. So my first book is Unwhite Appalachian Race and Film, where I kind of combine a lot of these things. So as I was in Boston and I was realizing that like people were stereotyping me and misunderstanding Appalachia, getting back to your, your question. Um, I, I really wanted to look at the ways that cinematic representations of the region were very powerful. And what struck me using this critical whiteness lens is that when you see a place depicted like in a film like Deliverance, um, you see the sort of romanticized but doomed um, people who are stuck living in the past, who are kind which of was, helpless. Which was actually filmed right down the road from Laurel right. Hall's camp. <laughs> Absolutely. And then you have the, you know, monstrous uh, rapists. And th that's what you see of Appalachia. And so neither of those, they're, they're both phenotypically white, but the argument that I'm making in the book is that they are also outside of 
um, standard whiteness in some way. And so Appalachia is in this um, kind of in between place racially. And yes, people do have white privilege um, and people are shown as phenotypically white, but there's also this, this otherness, this way that it's always off. And that maintains this like distance from the right kind of whiteness. And so would you would you call that in between whiteness? This is a is a catch all term, but poor whites, right? I mean, Appalachia is viewed as backwards. Yeah, most of the South is too, but Appalachia is viewed as backwards. You know, hillbilly mountains, mm-hmm. and this leads me to the question of you know one of the things we kind of talked about before we started recording was whether Lillian Smith is an Appalachian writer. Mm-hmm. She never focuses specifically on Appalachia as a region, right? There are a couple of moments in Killers of the Dream where she talks about Appalachia and the people here specifically. But one of the things she really focuses on are poor whites and the way that the wealthy separate poor whites from blacks or other communities, right? And when you're talking about that, and I'm thinking about the representation of Appalachia, I'm starting to think about poor whites is a broad term, but I'm wondering if we can consider her Appalachia, because that is a narrow fixed term for how people view this area. And I guess, I guess the question is what we asked before we recorded, should we consider her an Appalachian writer? Yeah. He wrote and lived here most of her life. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of, I'll try to talk about that in two ways. One, I, I don't really mean poor whites when I'm talking about this, because I think that what happens is that, this stereotype about Appalachia extends beyond um, social class. And yes, it's probably, it's tied historically to poverty. It's tied to people living with, you know, uh, little means and choosing a particular lifestyle. So there's a history there that that has to do with resources. But I think that, um, that it's, it's different than poor whites because it has to do with region. It's not just class. And so there's some overlap there, but I think that no, that even like um, someone who is not living in poverty in Appalachia, there's this conflation and misunderstanding, which happens throughout the South in general. Um, but I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit different. And I think it has to do with the history of um yeah, of resource extraction in Appalachia, that in order to justify removal of resources, removal of people, like is happening in deliverance, um, then you have to you have to think of these people as somehow less deserving of land, less deserving of resources, and so it it gets at something that is beyond um, social class, and it gets to something that's like deeply moral actually like there is something wrong with people from the mountains like that's kind of the stereotype that i see um but in terms of whether it's useful to talk about lillian smith as appalachian i think that there's a lot of gatekeeping that happens in um when we get into regional studies and that certainly happens with appalachian studies and i'll just say that i am not interested in the gatekeeping and so if a conversation about lillian smith who lived a big chunk of her life in, um, you know, in North Georgia, right? I don't know if that is technically in Appalachian County by the ARC map, but it, you know, it, it's right it, there. In the, it is. It stretches it down is. about two counties below Raven yeah. or one or two. Yeah. So I think that if it's useful to conversations about Appalachia, then yeah, I think bring her into the conversation. But that's that's what I would say broadly about, um, you know, if there's somebody, well, like I'm living in Maine now, right? And I don't think that I should lose my ability to be able to write about Appalachia because I'm not like de- living there currently. But I think this about, um, I, I think that I'm more of a <laughs> big tent when I think about Appalachia, but also, also a lot of other categories that if it's if it's useful to the conversation, I think you you can't make stuff up and there has to be some tie. Um, but I think bringing more people into conversations is more productive than thinking about where the gates are and who's in and who's out. And so 
it feels to me like Lillian Smith is writing about topics that are really central to Appalachian studies. Um, and she's writing from Appalachia and she's writing about Appalachian places at times. And she's also writing beyond that. But um, yeah, I, I would say if it makes sense to bring her into a conversation and define her that way, then yeah. Well, see that I like that. I like that discussion of gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. And kind of when I ask that question, I'm thinking about, you know, what constitutes regionality with an author? Is it where they wrote from or what they wrote about, right? You could live in Appalachia and not write about Appalachia, right? Um, Ernest Gaines lived most of his life. You know, he moved back and forth between California and Louisiana, but he's a Louisiana writer, you know, because he wrote about Louisiana. What constitutes that? It's kind of the same question of what constitutes, you know, these discussions of what constitutes a black writer or white writer, Mm-hmm. Um, that's a whole nother discussion I know, but I mean, it kind of reminds me of that a little bit too. And one thing I thought about when you were talking is, you know, I never even thought about August Wilson as being Appalachian, Yeah. but of course, you know, talking to Marie, I'm like, well, Pittsburgh's Appalachia and he's, App-. so I'm like, this kind of specifically Appalachia is kind of really interesting to me because of the wide swath that it goes, you know, most of the time when I think about it, it's like Virginia and West Virginia, mm-hmm. but it's up in North Alabama, right? I remember driving through Birmingham when we lived in Auburn. I'm like, there are mountains here. I didn't expect it. You know, I was just never thought about it. So I think that's a really kind of important thing too, to think about these kind of questions. And I like the fact you talked about yourself being, being in Maine and still considering yourself Appalachian because that's where your roots are too. I think that's an important part of it too. Yeah. That's where my roots are and it's where my, the heart of my work remains. And so, yeah, I don't have any qualms in like identifying in that way. And luckily so far, I don't think anybody's like questioned it. Um, But I think about, yeah, like to go back for a second to these, this question of like um, gates and boundaries. Um, One of the cool things that I was able to do in the um unwhite project is that I compiled uh I was able to access this map that um someone at University of North Carolina had compiled for a class and I had it reproduced and it's at the front of the book but it's I think five different maps of Appalachia layered on top of one another and what I love about it is that it shows that it is a contested space and that nobody can quite decide how to define it And so there are maps that have to do with geology. There are maps that have to do with, there's a USDA map that has to do more with like what is raised there. There are cultural mappings. And then ultimately the Appalachian Regional Commission, which is a political machine um, formed, you know, out of the war on poverty, like that map is the most inclusive map that is, you know, runs 13 states. And it's still kind of the map that people count. Like when I just said, yeah, is Raven County an ARC map? Like that's still kind of this gate that people use. It's the broadest gate. Um, And I I am really interested in those questions because I think you can't just say anybody can be Appalachian, anybody can be Southern. I think that there has to be, um, you know, some legitimacy or, or else it kind of would fall apart and wouldn't be meaningful. But thinking about how you define that is really interesting to me. Well, I mean, it's the quote I always say from James Baldwin, where he says, for all intents and purposes, I'm a Southerner. He never lived in the South. He was born in New York, right? Mm-hmm. But he says that because of his parents and their and the migration to the North, right? And still the Southern traditions that carried along. Mm-hmm. So I think I think the gatekeeping question, no matter if we're talking about Appalachia or whatever we're talking about, is a really interesting and important one to kind of think about and kind of how we what's the purpose of the lines? I guess is, I guess is yeah. the, is really the question we kind of get to with that, you know, is why do we need these lines, these designations when we're thinking about this? Yeah. So let's shift gears a little bit because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you still write about Appalachian, you still write about the South. Um, they're both together. Yeah. Uh, even though the South has very many different regions, Louisiana is a specific example because North Louisiana where I'm from is totally different than South Louisiana. Two totally different cultures, right? But your project that you worked on at the Lillian Smith Center actually deals with, you know, blood and heredity and Cherokee removal too, um, and just kind of this space and this land. Can you kind of talk to us about that project? Or if you want to talk first about your residency and 
how the residency kind of impacted it and was important to you? It's kind of two questions. We'll yeah, just go one yeah time, absolutely. I guess. Um, well, I'll put in a plug for anyone who listens to this who would benefit from a residency and just say that this was a phenomenal residency to be a part of. Um, it's this really amazing, beautiful space uh, that for me was a, a perfect place to kind of tuck up and um, and do the, the work that I need to get done. And while I was in residency there, I was able to finish a complete draft of the book, uh, which I will talk about. And I think that it was the ability to like go take a walk in the woods and Certainly the presence of Lillian Smith that I felt there, just thinking about how my work was intersecting with hers and how I would never have been on this path if it hadn't have been for um, work like hers. So it was it was really a pretty magical experience. Can you talk about one thing that everybody says when I ask them about a residency is the presence of Lillian? Mm-hmm. And I know you coming in contact with her work, but can you kind of talk about, I don't know how to describe it, that feeling for you of the presence and kind of why you say the presence of her being there? Because I feel it too when I'm up there, right? Well, I think part of it is that it's like a time capsule in the very best way. That like being in the the cabin that I was in, cottage that I was in, when I walked in, I was just like kind of blown away by the the mix of like having everything that I needed and it was modern in the ways that it needed to be modern but at the same time like just seeing books on the shelf that were you know like it it felt like a lot of stuff was kind of from the late 60s and putting me back in that um that time period and just thinking about yeah just thinking about the fact that uh this family lived there and did their work there in that space and um for me, just because it had not been completely renovated to make it like this uh, totally fresh new space for writers, it was like go entering into a time capsule, but in the very best ways. And like I said, like along with all of the modern things that you need. Um, I guess for me, it wasn't, you know, there was no like eerie experience that I had. It was more, it felt really grounding to me to think about when you're writing, when I'm writing, I often can feel like pretty alone. And I think many of us can feel like we get untethered and it's hard to know if anybody's ever going to read this. It's hard to know if these ideas make any sense. And something for me about just like being able to walk outside and wander down to, you know, where she's buried and to, I just would go and sit there and sometimes think really um, in a direct and concrete way about Lillian Smith and what her life must have been like there. But I think also just like it became a little bit broader, just thinking about the idea that words matter that it matters to tell stories, that it matters to, um, yeah, to get things down in writing and to say what you believe and to believe that someone is um, one day is going to read that and that it's going to matter. I think that that was what was inspiring to me. Well, that discussion of, you know, to feel like what you're putting down matters and to say what you need to say and you talk about sitting next to her grave and it always reminds me of, you know, the words on a tombstone that death can kill a man, that is all it can do. It cannot end his life because of memory. Right. Yes. It's like, what do we leave for posterity? What do we kind of view as important to leave for posterity? Those thoughts and ideas that we kind of relate. And that's the, so, so this will make sense why that was so moving to me to read that quote. Um, my book is about that. My book is really about how do we remember people? How do we memorialize someone? How do we take someone's life and pass along the stories about them that made them who they are? And so the book is called Bloodlines and it braids together. Um, One strand is me remembering my mom who died five and a half years ago 
and just trying to think about how to pin her down in some way so that she can be remembered and so that these memories don't fade. And it's also just about that. That part is really about my own grief of losing her and, and kind of a frantic desire to remember her. So there's that thread. And then there's a thread that has to do with home. And like, what does it mean to claim a place that you don't live anymore? What does it mean to try to connect to a physical spot of land? And then the the thread that kind of pulls everything together is me researching this myth of a Cherokee ancestor that had always been kind of in the background. It wasn't like guiding us in any important way, I don't think, but I had had the story around me for years and years. And so I, I finally went and researched this woman, Eliza Graves Garner, to, yeah, just to to understand like what actually was her story and to see if that that Cherokee myth was true. And so the way that these all fit together has to do with like, yeah, we are nothing but the stories that are told about us after we're gone. And so to to be thinking about those big questions, those kind of existential questions about story and meaning and remembrance in this space and to have that quotation about posterity and what we leave behind felt really significant for me. And I think that that sums up, there's a couple of things that it sums up, I think Lillian's, you know, quest and her writing, she deals with these existential questions and the journey really deals with that because she's coming to terms with her own mortality, right? She's just been diagnosed with breast cancer. And of course she lives about 12 more years after that. But the other thing you kind of talked about there, there too, is these, these intersections in your book and the way they weave together. And it always makes me think of space and place. Because mm-hmm. one of the things you mentioned about going to the center is the fact that it feels like her presence there, right? And when I always think about Ernest Gaines and going to the cemetery where the people he wrote about are buried and where he's now buried, you know, it's it's the place and the people who were there. He said, I, wrote, I write for those people who can't write for themselves, right? The people who have walked the space before them, right? When I walked in the streets of New Orleans, like, who's walked here? I know Faulkner and Williams and God knows how many other people walking or drunk falling over have walked those streets, right? Yeah. It's just kind of that those stories aren't tangible there, some of them, but a lot of those stories are there in pieces of literature that we read that we can place ourselves in, right? George Washington Cable, Frank Gerby write about New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So going back to the 1800s, I can think about that period. Mm-hmm. I always think that that grounding in a place is important and thinking about who came before, especially here with the Cherokee, right? And the Cherokee re- and Cherokee removal and the Trail of Tears, even though the Eastern Band is still here in North Carolina, right? I think that that kind of thinking about who was here before, um, not just Cherokee, but whoever else was here before between the that time and us, right? I think that that's an important thing to kind of remember. I think that's what Lillian kind of gets at with memory and stories, of course, are an important way for us to carry that on to think about it. Yeah. And one of the things I've kind of come to learn um, in my work with members of the Eastern Band is that stories, big stories, are tied to physical places in Western North Carolina and in that region broadly, where the Cherokee lived for so many years. And so in order to tell a story about, um, you know, like these stories that are kind of lessons, they're typically tied to a specific rock, a specific mountain, a specific stream or a place. So that, that just kind of goes along with what you're saying. And that's, that isn't the way that I came to understand place because I wasn't raised in that culture. And yet part of what feels so important to me when I am, in the place that I consider home in Western North Carolina is that I know that I remember my mom looking at a particular mountain and just being kind of blown over by the beauty of it. Just, just a simple moment. And I remember my pa doing the same thing. Her dad would like pull the car over to look at the way that the rime ice was on the mountain. And in the process of writing this book, I researched my own family history and realized that my mom's side goes back um, like to the at least seven generations and recognizing how long my family has been in Haywood County was really powerful. And because I'm also doing this research in the book about 
the lineage of the, the Cherokee and looking at maps and thinking about where were they and where was removal happening and where were these paths and recognizing it's right here and realizing that on the one hand, I feel excited and proud to recognize that my family goes back before Haywood County was called Haywood County. But then that also means that my ancestors were involved with removing the Cherokee. And so it's that, it's the very complicated truth of place and race, just in understanding that history. You know, it's one of the things we can kind of end here that Lillian talks about in Killers of the Dream, where she talks to the camper who comes and tells her, you know, you're telling us to hate our parents. It'd be easier if you told us not to do these things. And and Lillian kind of goes through this history of, you know, how we've gotten to where we've gotten to. And she actually starts off and says, this stuff was here before I was born. It was here before you were born. It'll be here after we're gone. Right. Mm-hmm. And what she kind of gets at, I think, when I was rereading this is that you don't have to feel guilty. You can feel shame about it. Right. But then the question is, how do we rectify and move forward from what has happened? Right. And yeah. I think we get hung up a lot of the time of thinking, well, we should feel guilty about what happened. We didn't do it. It was here before we were here, but that doesn't mean we can't change what has come from what has happened. Does that make sense? And I think yeah. that that's something really powerful that Lillian's kind of getting at there. And she's recognizing that, like I said, in the 40s, and she's saying, this stuff was here long before me. It was here before my parents. It was here before my grandparents. We're the inheritors of this, right? And mm-hmm. they didn't do anything, but what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. Right. And not doing something is complacent. Complacency is is a, is still a choice, right? And so that's why I feel like I get. I'm I'm pretty interested in this question of like the ways that guilt can cause paralysis, and you know, and this is this is happening today. We don't have to think about what did happen in the 1940s. We can think about what is happening right now in terms of racism, like you know, like what are we doing when we see acts of anti-Black police brutality? What are we doing when we see the ways that Cherokee stories are erased from bigger stories that are taking place, bigger conversations that are taking place? What are we doing when we see the ways that the Cherokee language is being lost? And what are we doing when we think about um, the ways that immigrants are being treated and laws that are being put in place to keep them, um, yeah, criminalized. And so there, I don't think we have to go back. I think for me, understanding history is important as a motivator because to me, there is no doubt that my ancestors played a role in, um, and I don't, I don't even mean seven generations back, but like white people that I am related to have benefited, have at the very least benefited from white privilege and have in kind of passive ways played a part in shaping a racist culture. And so I just use that as motivation to think, well, how, what do I want to do? Like what that, that (laughs) Mary Oliver quote that people frame is like, what will you do with your one wild and wonderful life or whatever the quote is. There's a way to think about like just enjoying every moment. There's also a way for me to think about like, what am I going to do? What, how can I be motivated by the things that have happened before and enact change and be active today and try to make things better and be engaged? That leads me to, you know, at the end and thinking about Lillian and her being hopeful because people say she's hopeful amidst all of this kind of, you know, negative discussion and heavy discussion. And I always think about a story that a former camper told me. And this is a story that her dad basically told her. It's kind of repeated through the camper and elsewhere, too. When she's writing Strange Fruit, the camper you know, comes into her cabin and sits down and Lillian tells her, I'm working on a book, you know, the world's about to change. You ready to change with it? And the girl's like, yeah, I think that that kind of hope is and what you're talking about kind of sums up kind of Lillian is like, there needs to be change. What are you going to do to be part of that change? Or are you just going to, like you said, sit by complicitly and mm-hmm. have the lynching happen? down the road and just ignore it. Right. Which is I, I'm finishing reading strange fruit right now. And that's basically what the rich white people in on college street are doing while the poor whites are out lynching Henry, mm-hmm. you know, they're sitting there and just going to bed, like nothing's happening. And Laura 
Tracy's sister's thing, but this, this kind of thing. Right. And I think that that's kind of what sums up Lillian to me is yes, here's this weighty stuff that you're dealing with. that were all ancestors too, but what are you going to do to change it? And Ernest Gaines does the same thing. I keep thinking about all the characters in Ernest Gaines' books that are like, yeah, I don't want this system, the, the wealthy white landowners who j- just get drunk instead of doing something. And they're like, no, I didn't want this system. It just kind of fell on my lap, but next generation is going to fix it. Mm-hmm. Just that kicking it down the road, which is what Gaines points out, what Lillian points out. And I think what you kind of summed up is, you know, the moment happening now is, and that brings us back to the importance of history. Like I'm a literary scholar. You know, my focus was literature, which yours was too, I'm assuming, right? If I remember yeah. correctly. Yet we are so intertwined with history. What what I think literature, well, one thing I, I want people to always understand is that all of these academic disciplines are overlapping. The sciences, the humanities, everything is overlapping. But there is a huge connection, I would say, between literature, art of any form, and history, right? And that in sociology, all the liberal arts, there's a huge connection between them because you can't understand a work of literature without understanding one, the history and the references it's referencing, especially if it's a historical text, and two, the historical context it comes out of. Right. Right. So us understanding and learning history, I think, is important to us understanding the present. And that's something I keep going back to again and again and again and again. And I think that's something that Lillian points to too. So yeah, is there anything you'd like to add or to close this out? Would you suggest one piece from Lillian Smith for us all to go read at this moment? Well, I will just say that Killers of the Dream is the thing that for me was so important because she is telling her own story. She's claiming her role. She's claiming her space and she's pushing back and asking for things to change. She's demanding that things change. But I think that the way that she writes that is is powerful and inspiring um, because it is forward-looking. It's not, it's not just stuck in the past. And I think that that's what gives me hope is that we can do better and we can teach better and we can expect better. Yes, I totally agree. And thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.